This is the GDUI July 2016 Juno Report. Dan Kaiser producing. This month we'll continue our two-part series on world-renowned guide dog instructors. This month we'll be hearing from veteran instructor Michelle Pouliot. They pretty much had been under the belief system that a woman couldn't do this work. We'll hear from some of our newest GDUI board members. I think it's very, very important to appreciate the relationship with your dog and not put too much pressure on either you or your dog. We have an exclusive interview with Bob Meir, who is executive director of a program that trains children for guide dogs. He's the only guy in the world that trains dog uh, guide dogs for children. We'll be hearing from Penny Reader, who will be discussing a very important survey conducted by GDUI and Dog Schools regarding taxi cabs and ride sharing. Plus, you'll hear much, much more here today on the July 2016 GDUI Juno Report. In our continuing series interviewing guide dog instructors from around the world, we interviewed renowned veteran guide dog instructor Michelle Pouliot, who is retiring after 42 years with Guide Dogs for the Blind in San Rafael, California. You've been a guide dog instructor for 42 years. I think uh, you've been around longer than I. I got my first dog in 77. You I believe were one of the first women as a, as a guide dog instructor. How hard was that for you to break into the field? Because back then you had Air Force dog trainers and that sort of thing. And uh, how hard was it for you to get into the profession? Well, you know, the interesting thing about that is that so many people, especially at Guide Dogs for the Blind, think that I was like the first woman instructor. Uh, and even those that, that knew that six months prior to me, there was another female hired uh, what everyone forgets is that one of the very first instructors at GDB was a woman, Lois Maryhew, way back. But she then was the last female until 1973. Okay. <laughs> so that was a long time that it turned into a man's job. And I have to say that when I arrived, uh, it was a little um, intimidating in that uh, the, it wasn't just that the staff was all male. It was uh, a bit of an attitude adjustment for them because they pretty much had been under the belief system that a woman couldn't do this work. In fact, I have a framed letter from another guide dog school that I applied to about the same time, and that letter says that women are not emotionally or physically able to do this work. Wow. <laughs> Wow. I know. So now you know why I have it framed. It's I find it quite quite interesting, especially when you look at the shift over the last several decades that it's it's the majority of women are now in this job versus uh men. So it's kind of an interesting shift, but uh, of course it was uh, a little difficult and I certainly had to prove myself to my peers. You were a role model to a lot of female guide dog instructors. Who was your mentor? Oh, really good question. I would I would probably have to say that in my first couple of years, 
Bruce Benzler was my mentor. Oh. He was the training supervisor at that time. And although I didn't get to work with him a lot, uh, of course, he tested everything. He was the one that did all the testing of the dog. So that was always a very nervous moment when Bruce was going to test you under blindfold. But I have to say, when I had moments with him to get advice, he always gave me really good advice about what to do with the problem I was having with the dog. So I have to say that he was probably one of the individuals that I really looked up to as far as if I had a, a question about guide dog training or working with clients, that would be the person to go to. The students were going through a big change because back when you started, you had male-dominated a male-dominated workforce, which required larger dogs like the shepherds and the bigger labs. And uh, then as, 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 as I guess you went along, uh, the trends started. You saw more women in the workplace, and then you saw smaller dogs. And uh, were you part of, of making sure that that happened, or how did that – was that a long, gradual change, or was that a sudden change, or how did that work? Well, it actually wasn't related to women and men versus that the client uh, capabilities were changing because as the word got out – about guide dogs and how they can help your mobility instead of the very athletic, outgoing people who maybe were in a war or just really bold travelers in general saying, I want to go get a guide dog. All of a sudden, we started having older uh, applicants and along with being older, less physically capable, uh, including in men. So I think if you looked at the medium age of people applying for guide dogs in the 70s, you're looking around in their 30s. And all of a sudden in the 80s and the 90s, we're looking at people in their 40s and 50s, um, which is a big difference when it comes to the kind of dog you can manage. I don't ever recall being involved in any we-need-to-breed-smaller dogs, but I do remember asking for more sensitive, easier-to-manage dogs. You ended up uh, becoming the research and development person at Guide Dogs for the Blind, and I was involved in one of your studies on harnesses, and it, it's been fascinating what you folks have come up with in terms of harnesses and the, the easy-move harness and the sort of overall evolution of harnesses. Do you see the Swiss harness as the end-all harness, or do you see any more developments in that area? Well, although the Swiss harness is an exceptionally wonderful harness, well-balanced, lightweight, it's, sti it's still not the end-all. We're always looking for ways to improve it, and we're still using a few of those free movement harnesses occasionally on individual dogs or for clients who prefer it. Uh, I think that when you're looking at the locomotion movement of a dog, and a guide dog, where they're putting pressure points on their body when they work, I think you're always having to give and take on what's more important. But the, it isn't the end all. I mean, we're always looking, like in my head, I would love to see a really easy-to-use retractable handle that was also very lightweight. The problem is as soon as you start getting into the retractable handle, you're adding some weight to the harness. So that means that when you don't retract it and it sits 
on the dog's back, it's going to have more weight than our current Swiss, which is really light. Well, I want built-in. So, I want built-in Wi-Fi, but I don't ask for much. Anyway. I, I think that's a great <laughs> idea too. In fact, who knows? You know, the, the harnesses of the future are probably going to have a cell phone pouch on. <laughs> what do you think are some of the big issues about travel today as compared to the past? I think it's it's more involved for both the dog and the handler because it's just simply busier and people are so focused on getting somewhere fast, whether they're driving a car or they're walking on the sidewalk. Um, and they're so busy with technology that they're not paying attention to where they're going. I think that uh, the homeless situation has caused real challenges for guide dog users because often those people will have a pet dog with them and sometimes not a very friendly dog. So um, I think in general, just the environment a guide dog team has to work in is much more difficult today than it was in the 70s. And it, it feels like more people are walking less distances. Their, their work routes have to do with getting to a bus, getting to a train, getting to a cab, um, and then being transported to their destination and then working from that transport to their destination. So in the 70s, I felt like we had so many common routes that were of distance. People were walking several miles to get to a destination. And it, I think the modern guide dog user is using their dog all day long, but maybe not really logging that many actual miles with the dog. So that can be a challenge if you have a high energy dog. That can actually pose a challenge because the dog's not getting that much work. But on top of that, I just think that busyness is a higher stress on both guide dog and handler. What is your feeling um, on loading extra equipment onto your dog to keep it well-trained? All this extra stuff, and my gut feeling is, well, if you can't train the dog to, to basically deal with the environment, uh, I don't think that dog is, is well-trained. You can be right on one hand. Uh, our perception of this is that all the dogs should be able to be easily worked on a martingale collar, which is a fabric collar. It's called a half check commonly. So it's not a choke chain. So all of the dogs should be able to be effectively handled, managed, and worked on that. The problem sometimes, though, does come into the individual client and their physical strength and ability. And things like having an extra tool and I think I'm going to go ahead and put my gentle leader on so I have an easier time managing my dog in that environment. That's kind of our opinion. Our only extra tool really we use is the gentle leader or, or a head collar of some kind, not as the dog has to wear it, but it's an added tool to help somebody manage the dog easier. You are one of the gurus on clicker training, and you're in a lot of literature. You and Lucas are two of the top uh, clicker training experts in the country as far as guide dog. What do you say to this issue that are you desensitizing the dog from your verbal commands with clicker training where the dog becomes more interested in the clicker than in the positive uh, voice output of the human? Well, if you had asked me that question 
in 2001, I would have probably said, wow, yeah, that could be a problem. But what I've learned over the years as I've gotten better and better at applying this very, very powerful tool called clipper training is that it makes the dog more sensitive to what the handler says and more in tune to what they're asking. So here's the, here's the secret. All of the food rewards that we're giving these dogs in early training, every single time we deliver a reward, like say, say we marked a behavior with the clicker, dog did something wonderful, we marked it. And as we're giving this food reward, we're saying, what a good boy. We are actually classically conditioning that those words have more meaning than ever. Where do you think uh, guide dog training is going to go? I mean, we have we have technology, we have GPS, we have so many new things. Uh, I, I know when I get turned around, sometimes I pull out my GPS and uh, it gets me set on the right track again. It's a really interesting uh, thought to try to figure out what the future in guide dog work is. I I don't think very soon it would ever go away. So even with technology being wonderful for the handler as a mobility aid, I think you still are going to have a large population that love the interaction and the partnership of traveling with a guide dog. One, you're not traveling alone. You're traveling with a friend. Um, and obviously there's a social aspect too, both for the public but for yourself personally. I, I just hope that guide dog users, as they use technology to help them, which, you know, yes, go for it, great. They just don't let it interfere with their relationship with their guide dog. I've got to ask you this question, Michelle. What are you going to do when you retire? Well, actually, I'm already booked for two years, so I'll be very busy consulting still and go. giving seminars. And it'll be in the private sector along with the guide dog industry and service dog industry. But I, I, I'm not really retiring from teaching. I'm just retiring from my day-to-day -day duties. Uh, I'll still be working with guide dogs for the blind uh, as a consultant coming in and helping them too. So I, I'm not going to go away. Uh, I'm still there, and I, I'm, I'm not ready to totally abandon the guide dog industry because it's such a part of me. And I'm so excited about what's happening now in the industry. So I, I kind of want to remain a part of it uh, for several years, but I'll just have weekdays off. <laughs> in this upcoming two-part series, we present the latest GDUI board members. We're talking to Diana Noriega, and she's been newly elected to the GDUI board. And what is your position? I'm first vice president. Very awesome. You sound a little, little bit like Penny Reader, actually, at least on the phone. <laughs> but some people have thought we talk alike. We don't think so. <laughs> Why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself? Okay. Well, I got my first guide dog in 1968 when I graduated from high school. Wow. And was on my way to college. So I am currently working with my ninth guide dog, a German Shepherd from the Seeing Eye. All nine of my dogs have been from the Seeing Eye. We'll hear from Diane Noriega a little later in the show.
we met up with Bob Meary, a fellow that trains guide dogs for children. Let's hear more from Bob. I became friends with the founder of Mira Canada, and uh, he started a program uh, 20, 25 or 26 years ago for children. And he's the only guy in the world that uh, is accredited group that trains dog, uh, guide dogs for children. So I figured, well, you know, nobody's doing it here in the United States. I'm going to bring that down here. And I started that in 2009. We made our application, and uh, we received the 5013C3 uh, status. And then uh, we provided our first two guide dogs in 2010. And we're up to 25 dogs now. What is, what is, what is the difference between teaching an adult how to use a guide dog and, and, and teaching a child how to use a guide dog? Basically, it's the same, except the guide dogs that the children get have to be the best of the best. Because, you know, kids kids are going to make mistakes, and the guide dog will correct them. So are you affiliated with the Canadian school, or are you uh, independent of that? No, no, we're affiliated with it. What we do is we recruit our children down here, and we send them up to Canada for a month. They go up for the month of July, and we pay all the expenses. Um, and the dogs work out to about $65,000 a dog. 60 to 65, depends on where the kid lives. And what we do is, is the child goes up and works for a, a full month with the dog, learning how to work with the dog. And then the trainers, after about two weeks when they're home, the trainers will come down and spend two or three days with each child. And they'll do that three times, uh, you know, or how many times the child needs it. Some once is enough. Uh, others, it'll be three or four times. But regardless of where the kid lives, the trainer will go and spend spend the time with them. And that's, uh, I don't want to have you spill all the beans now because I want folks to go to the luncheon and hear your, <laughs> hear your presentation. And we want to try to get them in there. And, and, and there's a lot of, you know, and I'm sure you'll touch on this in, in, in at the luncheon. You know, there's a lot of controversy about teenagers and kids uh, using dogs and the responsibility level and all that. Now, I'm sure you'll address all that. And we, and we really look forward to hearing that. Uh, you're going to be speaking at the GDUI luncheon. And how can people find out more about uh, your program? Uh, go to our website. It's Mira, M-I-R-A, MiraUSA.org. MiraUSA.org. Well, Bob, I thank you very much for the opportunity to chat with you, and we look forward to seeing you in Minnesota. It's the GDUI Doghouse. Hints and tips. Today, Diana Noriega. I've known a lot of good handlers, excellent handlers, and the ones that um, really shine for me are the ones that do daily obedience, the ones that keep their dog as a working dog and don't um, turn it into a pet. The temptation is there because they're beautiful and they're friendly and they're devoted, but um, they won't be any good to you if they don't do what they're supposed to do. And if you don't keep that up and allow them to start being um, overly social in public, overly food oriented, you know, all of those things can make it so much more of a struggle to keep your dog under control. And um, that's the important part because um, if your dog isn't working, 
for you, then he's not any good for you. You know, he's putting you at risk. If you would like to leave a comment on the GDUI Juno line for other listeners on any hints and tips you might have, call 916-250-2629. That's 910-250-2629. I think it's very, very important to... Here's new board member Brianna Murray. Just appreciate the relationship with your dog and not put too much pressure on either you or your dog because as a new handler, it's hard not to put pressure on yourself to make sure you're doing everything right. And that pressure goes straight down the harness to the dog. So I think it's really important to just try to keep a low-stress environment and an open mind and appreciate the journey that you and your dog go on. Why did you want to run for the board and what do you plan to do on the board? What's your big goal? Um, well, I wanted to run because I'm very passionate about iDog and GDUI has helped me get where I am with my dogs and helped a lot of other people. And so my main goal is just to <clears throat> support people with their dog and, you know, give back to an organization that's given so much to me over the years. My dog right now is named Hops. Um, she was actually sponsored by a beer company. Oh, nice. Um, and she is a black lab from Dog Foundation. What what beer company? Um, I'm not sure. I don't oh, know. Okay. I just know all of the siblings in the litter had different beer names. There was like Barley and Hobbs and Adams and yeah. Well, maybe it was Samuel Adams. Could have been. Could have been. Do they have a different training philosophy or what? What are they most like as far as their training? Um, well, our training has drastically shifted in the last year or so, and we switched to two-week training methods. Um, and we've added in food rewards and clicker, which is very new. Um, and we're doing a lot of different work with targeting and that kind of thing. And it's it's changed a lot. The dogs are amazing. Hobbs is a great dog. Penny Reader discusses a brand new survey coming out today on ride sharing and taxi cabs. The survey is going to be an online survey, and ACB, GDUI, and Cus Dogs are the three organizations that are sponsoring the survey. And what is Cus Dogs again? And Cus Dogs is the Council of U.S. Guide Dog Schools. Awesome. So all of everybody's schools is a member, everybody's U.S. school or most of them anyway, uh, is a member of um, Cus Dogs. And they all get together to talk about mutual problems and try to find mutual solutions to their problems. So they realize, as we do, that there is a huge problem with taxi cab refusals. So that's why we're doing the survey. Is this about um, ride sharing as well or just taxi cabs? It's ride sharing as well. Okay. So it's, it's about crowdsourced services like Lyft and Uber as well. Okay. So the um, Eric and I, Eric Bridges, who's the executive director of ACB, and I got together about probably almost a year ago, and we started thinking about this problem. And we both concluded that we, both of us, on a weekly basis, hear several reports of taxi cab refusal from people. I know it happened to several people during convention week. Wow. And it, ha- it happens all over the country. There's also, I would think, at least one article a week in somebody's local paper about taxi cab refusal. And even before we can't, we got Uber and Lyft, we were having this problem. I know I filed a couple complaints with my first guide dog. Um, and, and, and it's just a continuing problem, even though the ADA is nearly 26 years old. So we think that we would like to go to the Department of Transportation, the Department of Justice, whoever would uh, write regs 
regarding this issue, but it would be better for us to go if we had statistics to indicate how serious the problem is. So that's why we decided to do a survey. The survey is not just for GDY members, it's for any service dog user, any guide dog user, any other kind of service dog user, anybody who is blind or visually impaired, who is refused service by a taxi cab company. Now, I know that sometimes they refuse us because they just zoom by and we don't know they're, they're there and somebody tells us. So we tried to make the survey comprehensive. It shouldn't take you too long. Eric and, well, the GDY, GDY is the organization that came up with the questions. I asked the board members and they came up with about 30 questions. And I think some of them have been consolidated. I have not seen the finished product. So I don't know how many questions there are, but we don't think it'll take you longer than 10 or 15 minutes. It will be an online survey. It will be accessible. And where do they go? And it's going to go on uh, GDY. is going to have a link on our website. ACB is going to have a link on their website. And Custogs, I believe, will have a link on their website. And they're also going to get all the schools who are members to fill out the survey as well. So um, it's only going to be up for a little while, I think a month max. So there's going to be some time pressure to get it done. But I hope that everybody in GDY will take the time to fill it out. I, because the more information we have, the larger our sample size, the more reliable our results are going to be, and the more the Department of Justice or the Department of Transportation or even state agencies will take us seriously. You know, most states have some kind of an agency in Maryland. It's the Public Service Commission that handles taxi cab refusal complaints. So we want everybody to understand that it's a problem that's huge and it's increasing. And um, even though there's a lot of publicity surrounding it, there's still that occasional Uber driver that will say, I'm not gonna have your dog's hair in my car. Happened so. to me last month, so. It happened to me at a convention. We went out to dinner, um, an Uber driver stopped. He said, oh no, 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 I don't have dogs in my car. And we like we advocated like crazy and we convinced him to take my dog. <laughs> so that worked out well. And then it's we kind of fun when that happens. <laughs> it's gonna come up this week. It's gonna go up online this week. I do not know which specific day, but it will be this week as far as we know. Cuss dogs, the reason we went to them for help is because they're funding it. They're paying for a, a company to create the survey and make sure it's accessible. And they're going to also help collect the statistics. So it's really up to them. But they assure me it's going to go up this week, the week of the 11th, which is tomorrow, Monday. So um, I will make sure I send out an announcement when it comes up. And um, I hope that everybody will complete it and get your friends to complete it. You don't have to be a GDUI member. You just have to be a guide dog user. And the more users we have completing the survey, the better results we're going to get. Thanks to Michelle Pouliot. And the best of luck to Michelle for another 42 years of great success. The GDUI Custog Survey can be retrieved at our website on guidedogusersinc.org. Mira Guide Dogs USA can be found at www.mirausa.org. 
Thanks to Diana Noriega and Brianna Murray, our newest board members. And remember, you can reach the Juno line and leave your comments, hints, or tips by calling 916-250-2629. Until next month, this has been Dan Kaiser and safe travels. To either download or subscribe to the GDUI Juno Report, point your podcaster or browser at http colon acbradio.org slash gdr.xml. And you can also search on the iTunes store for the GDUI Juno Report. The GDUI Juno Report is copyright 2016 with all rights reserved by Guide Dog Users Incorporated.